Load the plates and lift the weights And we are mates and weights are great And as of late we pontificate About the weights and make a podcast Sumo is cheating This is Weekly Weights with Alex and Will Welcome to Weekly Weights This week we were joined by Jacob Skepis And our chat actually went considerably over time So we've decided to split the episode in two One part to come out this week, one part coming out next In part one, we talked to him about ongoing education for personal training, um, what critical thinking is, and the ways in which we can go about learning things to apply to ourselves and our clients to become better practitioners. Hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Weekly Weights. This is episode number 24, and joining us today is a special guest. Is it uh, Jacob Skepis or Jacob Shepis? Skepis. Like school, mate. Come on, get it together. No, Alex, um, I was <laughs> I was saying to him before we started this episode, he sold me a huge dummy because every time he tees somebody up for us to interview, they've got a really fucked surname. I'm sorry, but like they're hard to pronounce because we had Hanny Gisarelli. Um, his other coach was Amir Fazeli. We've got John Paul Couchy coming eventually, whose name's actually pronounced Kauki. Who else has coached him? Yeah. So we've pretty much yeah, yeah we've ticked them all off, but they've all got difficult surnames. So I think it's a prerequisite. It's part of my it's part of my selection criteria in coaches. Um, I'm glad I made the cut, man. Yeah, other than a other than a difficult surname though, Jacob's got a few strings to his bow. Alex, you want to rattle a few off? So Jacob is a uh, bodybuilder and powerlifter. He's a coach of both disciplines. Um, he's the owner of JPS, which I believe has two locations in Melbourne. Um, and he's also just started the J- JPS education system. So that's kind of like where we wanted to start was with the education side. So Will, do you want to take that over? Yeah, so um, this is a slightly different, slightly different themed episodes to the ones that we've spoken about so far. Um, up until now, we've had experts on to more or less tell us what they think about a given topic. Um, but where Jacob and his education system specializes in, is in actually teaching us how to think. And so we want to have a sort of broad um, chat about the idea of evidence-based practice and how we as trainers or athletes can go about making good decisions for ourselves and the people that we coach to be better. So I guess the first question, Jacob, is what is evidence-based practice? Yeah, awesome. Thank you uh, for the intro, lads. And I guess, yeah, that's something I'm really interested in and very passionate about is teaching people how to think. And I think as practitioners, the evidence-based practice model is quite useful in guiding our decision making but I don't really like the term evidence-based because I think that draws too much attention to the science uh, as opposed to what coaches should be doing which is making informed decision based on the evidence as opposed to being evidence-based per se but we'll get into that in a minute but to begin why I think evidence-based practice is useful for coaches is it allows us to ask very important questions such as what works and how do we know it works because history has shown that human intuition and the experience of coaches is really, really awful, uh, especially when trying to figure out what is and isn't effective. And although science is far from perfect, careful experimental testing and coaching with a very, very critical eye is by far the best way to find out whether a diet or training protocol works. So this is big ticks for science. And it's a basis for basically every major advancement in history, uh, you know, can be boiled down to the science. So evidence-based practice 
in essence, is an interdisciplinary approach to personal training that has been gaining quite a significant amount of popularity in the fitness industry in an attempt to eliminate unsound, risky, and quite subjective advice. And I think as practitioners and athletes, when discussing any theoretical model, it's important to know its history and where it comes from, so its origin and intended use. So the evidence-based practice model stems from the medical profession back in the, I think it was the 90s, 1992, I think it first uh, started gaining some traction, and it was used by doctors in the medical profession to prescribe and diagnose treatments, illness, and all the rest of it. And within the context of evidence-based practice, there are three pillars. That is the science, so the best available research, experience, and the anecdote, observations of the coach, and then the client. So the evidence-based practice model, as I mentioned earlier, has been used as a means to guide coaches' decision-making process for their clients by integrating the best available science with their experience in combination with context. So that is the characteristics, needs, values, and preferences of the client. So the way I perceive evidence-based practice is more or less a checklist uh, that must satisfy all three elements. It's not about which uh, component of the evidence-based practice model is more important. Rather, it's are we paying attention to the science, are we understanding the role of our experience, and are we tailoring the approach to the client. So I guess that is... Okay, we're just having some technical difficulties. Give us one sec. Can you just repeat that last sentence? So I see it as a checklist, and as coaches, we must satisfy all three elements of the evidence-based practice model. So that is using the best available research, paying attention to our own anecdote, observations, and experiences, and recognizing the role of tailoring the approach to the client. So I guess in a nutshell, that's what evidence-based practice is. So I think a, a common misconception about evidence-based practice, and it's one that you addressed early in your answer, is that it's basing decisions purely off of science. How mm-hmm. is it that, I guess, purely science-based practice and what you've defined as evidence-based practice differ? And could you maybe give an example scenario if one comes to mind of you know where an evidence-based approach might be more appropriate than just sort of scientific literalism? Yeah, for sure. So I guess for the listeners who may not be uh, familiar with what we're discussing here, Will, science-based practice is more or less a refinement of the evidence-based practice model. So I'm a little bit uh, anal retentive with this kind of stuff. And if I research a topic like evidence-based practice, I always find myself getting into the weeds of things. And this was uh, another example of me deviating off into a very deep and dark rabbit hole. But science-based practice, like I said, It's a refinement of evidence-based practice, and the idea is emphasizing science in general instead of evidence in particular. And I think from memory, it was a neurologist, uh, I think his name was Stefan or Stephen Novella. He was a uh, medical professional back in the uh, early 2000s, I think it was, when he started really bringing light to science-based practice uh, as a means of understanding what we do in practice more so than evidence-based practice. But like you said, um, the reason for science-based practice or I guess the yeah, the idea behind it was that evidence-based practice appears to worship 
clinical trial evidence above all else and nearly completely ignores uh, basic science considerations and the literalism that comes with science and relegating them to lower form of evidence, even lower than small case theory. So the blind spot in the evidence-based practice model has directly contributed to the infiltration of you know quackery and pseudoscience into the academic fields related to exercise science, nutritional science, and you know people claiming to be evidence-based practice. So the difference between uh, science-based practice and evidence-based practice might seem like hair splitting to many people, and it certainly did for me when I started looking into it. However, it looks to the science and not intentionally to usurp evidence-based practice, just to emphasize some of the neglected and abused aspects of it, which are to really understand the role of science in general and to make sure that we're not uh, you know, allowing pseudoscience to infiltrate our practice as coaches. Cool. And I guess, yeah, an example uh, of that would be people uh, nitpicking studies to support their claims or only reading the abstracts um, of certain articles and then using that to support a certain contention or theory that they, you know, want to pass on because that's what they believe to be true. Cool. So you mentioned that there's a lot of quackery in the fitness industry and for lack of a better word, bullshit in the fitness industry. But at the same time, there's been like quite a big uptick in evidence-based and science-based practices within the fitness industry in the last probably like five or 10 years. Why do you think this is the case? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. I actually, when you guys sent me through the notes, I had to think about it and I guess the biggest reason that people are more interested in science than ever is simply advancements in technology. The research is becoming more and more accessible. It's becoming sexy because there's an element of mystery to science, especially for the layperson. I think they don't necessarily understand what goes on in a research lab or the different types of studies and the quality of certain research and the nuances within interpretation of the literature, so on and so forth. Um, but when certain elements of science are used to promote or support a contention or an idea, it sounds real, it sounds true, and it's very convincing. And I think that has led a lot of people to turn to science uh, as a means to promote or gain momentum, support, and traction in what they believe to be true. So I guess that's the primary reason. Um, and I think also in terms of the training and nutritional fields, we're seeing a big rise in the scientific community because it is in essence what we do. We are practitioners at the end of the day who are trying to identify what works, what doesn't, and ask important questions of the protocols we're using with our clients. So I think that interest in finding what is best, finding what is true from coaches has led to a huge rise in what we turn to and what information we look to to gain answers to those questions. Um, I think I think um, as you were saying, technology sort of helped disseminate so much scientific information and it's making it sort of the center of discourse. I, I have a philosophical belief that the more information that you can make available to people, the better, you know, the better able they are to make good decisions and mm -hmm. informed decisions for themselves and for their practice. But a danger of having 
the science communicated directly to practitioners is that if they lack scientific literacy or they lack an ability to actually synthesize that knowledge with the wider body of research, it can lead them to make poor decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess part of the purpose of your JPS education program and why we wanted to have you on is actually to have this discussion about how can we how can we distill that evidence or that scientific evidence into practice ourselves. So you know, I've I guess that itself was one major drawback or potential drawback, I should say, of trying to form an evidence based approach. What are the other ones, and how how have you yourself tried to go about um, you know, I guess getting past the pitfalls in forming an evidence-based opinion on whatever topics you do. Yeah, that's that's a really good point and I would agree with you in terms of that f- philosophical underpinning of you know, why information is important and the more information that we have out there is definitely a great, great thing but I think not all information is created equally and as you mentioned, this is a huge pitfall with the rise in evidence-based practice because what most people perceived to be evidence is not necessarily anecdote and experience or the individual itself but the science and the research and science definitely has its limitations and coaches need to develop new skills in seeking and appraising evidence and that takes a considerable amount of time and effort and like we've mentioned a few times now scientific literacy is not easy it's quite difficult to wrap your head around and this is something that I struggled with a lot in my early days of my career, but fortunately I had a few mentors such as Alan Aragon, uh, Eric Helms, James Krieger, who I've been you know, in the background working with on improving my knowledge and understanding of certain things, um, who led me in the direction of you know, some pretty cool books and papers, articles and things like that on how to interpret research, you know, basics of data analysis and all that kind of stuff. So I could really look at a study, understand what I was doing, what it's found, the limitations, all of that kind of thing. So it took me literally five or so years to wrap my head around this and I think that's a huge skill uh, in being evidence-based is knowing how to interpret research, understanding the different types of scientific literature and also understanding the quality and the weight of that evidence. For example, we have things that are immutable truths such as energy balance and then we have things that are just theory speculation or have very low quality research behind them. So we need to understand that difference. I think another drawback in the evidence-based practice model is often it can ignore individual difference. So, you know, a regression to the mean, we always start with those broad strokes. What works on average for the average person will work on average for the average person. But we also have outliers and circumstances and contexts around the individual. And I think uh, in trying to be evidence-based, a lot of coaches really ignore individual difference. I think as we've mentioned, people place science on a pedestal and dismiss the role of anecdote, uh, confirmation bias, and and you know, living in an echo chamber is a huge drawback. So confirmation bias, you know, perpetuates misinformation, and when incorrect information bounces around through an echo chamber, it pretty much leaves a mark every place it hits. So even if something we read is disproven, we can't unsee incorrect information, and that in and of itself can can warp our perception or understanding of what is true, what is not true, and make getting to the truth even more difficult. So I guess that would be some of the drawbacks uh, that you know I've definitely seen and experienced personally. So I hope um, that I'd love to wind you nice. back for a moment, sorry, yeah. um, because you rattled off actually um, 
you rattled off when you were giving that answer lots of things that probably we ought to interrogate just a little bit more to join the dots for people who um who aren't as well versed as you so um you spoke about sort of dismissal of anecdote and then you know in the same breath you spoke about this idea of regression to the meat um Mm -hmm. and so in scientific papers often what is reported is a mean response to an intervention so say we have you know a training intervention people grew x amount on average plus or minus this and that they might report individual data um and it's very easy to interpret that as meaning that were you to implement the exact same exact same intervention you know in a civil population you would expect the average response from the given person there are lots of people who take that as a gospel truth why why would that be a fallacious assumption and what implications does that actually have for a practitioner? Awesome. So, again, I think you're using training uh, research and applied studies on resistance training as an example, um, they might have a number of elements within the training study that simply implausible for the individual that you're working with. And again, just because the average response was positive, or, you know, in terms of whatever was being measured, that could be, you know, one rep max strength improvements on a back squat. It could be, you know, muscle thickness, uh, you know, in, of the quads using certain volume uh, and intensities. In practice, those protocols may not necessarily be feasible and practical long-term because many of the training studies that we see usually between you know four to twelve weeks and often they have some pretty pretty nasty you know approaches especially in the hypertrophy studies where they'll take most sets if not all sets to failure and while that's fine over a short training period it might not necessarily work on the long haul and again you know we need to understand the the trainees being studied and whilst we have untrained individuals which are usually I think it's yeah pretty much no training experience then we have trained individuals which is typically the criteria for that correct me if I'm wrong Will you'll know a little better than I do but I think it's anywhere between like one to two years of training experience so the sometimes even less yeah 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 yeah. the the definition of trained is often very flimsy and sometimes arbitrary study to study so they'll say like you know trained individuals and then they'll just establish some some criteria like you know can bench body weight say and yep. there's plenty of people who so can they're, hard, bench body they're hardly weight. they're hardly uh, advanced yeah. um so we'll quite qualify for the yeah, study yeah i've been booted out of studies actually <laughs> yeah so i think um you know in terms of uh regression to the mean these kind of averages are based on a lot of assumptions within you know what's going to be applicable to the individual and in many cases, we know, for example, the genetic response to you know hypertrophy training. Uh, sorry, so the genetic response in terms of somebody's potential to build muscle, which is studied, uh, you know, quite a lot in the exercise science literature. There's a huge inter-individual variation in terms of how much muscle somebody will grow, um, which means that the protocol being applied, whilst we might see somebody who gets ridiculous gains over that you know eight to twelve week study we have people who literally grow no muscle at all so i think understanding the differences within the individual but also the type of people being studied 
and the methodologies of those studies are really important when we try to extrapolate that into application in the real world with an individual client. So there's a there's a concept that um, that often goes over the heads of I guess trainers and practitioners. This is the same, exactly the same in the field of dietetics, um, which is where I did my masters, and that's um, that's of things being multifactorial. So mm-hmm. and you know training interventions are the same when we see people for diseases or you know people who are there to lose weight. You know the causes of their obesity say are multifactorial. There's lots of things that contribute. And in the case of training interventions, we get studies that are designed usually to examine one variable. So like you were saying, say the hypertrophy studies that are looking at you know, response to differing amounts of volumes. But because most people, or in most, I should say most variables, people sit on a bell curve, right? So there's, there's a distribution of responses to, you know, to manipulation of a given variable. And most people sit towards the middle of it, but they might sit either side of it a little bit. When you have... When you have phenomena that are enormously multifactorial, like you know obesity or your development as a bodybuilder or a powerlifter, there's lots and lots of inputs where you could sit, you know, you know, five percent either side of average on lots and lots of things. When you sum them up, you get individuals that are very, very different. And I think a huge part of the art of coaching and training people, and this is something that sort of came to light to me in some of my discussions with Luke Tullick, who we had on in episode, I don't know, thirteen or something. Alex is like an encyclopedia for Weekly Weights episodes. He knows when all of them were. But something that came, something that sort of um, that came through when I was talking to him, because he's you know brilliant with synthesizing all of this science, is being able to recognize that although you can you can use the average response as a place to sort of start your interventions, you need to be able to intuit where people differ from the average response and how the other things you've observed about them. Um, you know, as you coach them and as you relate to them, might influence their response to something new because it's often not good enough just to implement something and wait eight or twelve weeks before you say, you know, oh, yeah, that didn't work. You've got to sort of make your best guess at what's going to work based off of what you already know and synthesize that with the science in front of you. And I think that seems to be the crux of a lot of what you're saying to do with evidence-based practice. One hundred percent. So something that I actually do with a lot of my powerlifters uh, and more advanced physique athletes is I will write a two to three week training block and really, really scrutinize their data in terms of recovery, um, you know, bar speed, general motivation to train, all those things before I actually write their new plan. Just as an example of their subsequent training program, it's almost like a base program just to, yeah, really hone in on where some potential individual differences lie. And, and just uh, for context, this is with my new clients who I haven't been working with for a long period of time, obviously. Um, so when I'm starting somebody out, I'll have you know a really specific time frame on when I want to know what I need to know to then tailor the approach and make those intuitive calls based on you know the lifestyle factors, psychology. Obviously, we want to see you know improvements and recovery. Um, and training throughout that initial three weeks. We want to see lifts going up. We want to see them bouncing back from session to session and adapting and whatnot to the stimulus. So, yeah, I think as coaches, we really need to be very pedantic with how we apply science and set timeframes. Although it's they're always going to be arbitrary timeframes, I think we need to have specific 
goals and times when we want to find out as much as we can about an individual. So I obviously have you know processes before I even put pen to paper in a program and nutrition plan. So I have a subjective interview in the form of a questionnaire, and then I'll have a subjective interview with uh, a Skype consultation. And in that those two initial phases, I want to learn as much as I can about the person so that I can then apply those broad strokes and guide those first few initial decisions. From there, that initial phase of, like I mentioned as an example, that you know three to four week period where I'm really trying to find out how that person responds to the training protocols that I've applied based on what I've found out, um, you know, my questionnaires and interviews and whatnot. Um, I then need to know as much as I can about how they're going to respond to the input, right? Um, and that will then guide my subsequent decisions. So I think having little processes like this um, can really be useful for any coaches or athletes out there, um, as opposed to saying, cool, the science says this, I'll just start with this and then wait until it stops working. It's like, well, yes, if it's not working, we obviously need to change something, but if it is working, a lot of people say that if it's working and it's not broken, don't try and fix it. But I like to always try to make things better, even if they are working, and making logical and rational decisions uh, around that. But I think you're 100% spot on that being evidence-based isn't just starting with the broad strokes of what works on average, but really looking to refine that very, very quickly so that we can get you know better results quicker and quicker for the client. I've got a question, Jacob. If you get someone new who comes on who answers your questionnaires and you have the Skype consultation with, who answers similarly to someone who you already coach, do you kind of build a plan that's similar to someone you've already seen before? Definitely, I think experience can be a great starting point. If I have somebody who, it depends, I guess, the degree to which they're similar. So it might be that they have similar training experience, they might have you know, similar personality traits, they could have similar leverages, uh, similar strength capability, like there's so many factors, but I think as a starting point, yeah, we always need to be looking at our experience and the research. So I think it's our safest bet is to initially, anyway, start with the combination of the research. What is it saying? For example, we don't want to start someone with 30 sets a week for a given muscle group because we know that based on the research, it's probably not going to be any more or less beneficial initially for a new client anyway, um, than say 10 to 20 sets, then using my experience, is this person potentially going to respond to you know, that kind of volume and what has their previous training experience entailed um, and what do I know works most of the time and will give me a greater certainty in what's going to take place in the coming weeks and months. Uh, but then I think we can start to look to the individual. So for me, it's really a process of where do I have, as I mentioned, I want to be evidence-informed, not evidence-based. So where do I have evidence in terms of hypertrophy? Well, based on what I know about this new client, I've literally got two pieces of information to start with. I've got a questionnaire, which most of the time uh, is filled out with minimal detail. Most people just plug in information one word answers, two word answers, you guys know how it goes, and a 30 minute Skype consultation. I'll obviously try and get their previous programs and lifting footage, but outside of that, I don't have a whole lot of information. 
but I've got 10 years of experience and I've you know read and tried to understand the science and literature behind hypertrophy and strength gains, all that kind of stuff for years and years and years. So I think initially I've got more information in those two uh, pillars of the evidence-based practice model and my goal is to start there with as much individualization as necessary to make sure that the client's able to adhere and that it's not going to hurt them or do any damage. And then as I start to assess their response, and like I said, that initial three weeks, four weeks, I really want to start to see how they're responding uh, to the protocol. And then I can start to tailor things more aggressively towards their needs based on their recovery and adaptations as opposed to trying to shift too too many eggs into that individualization basket when I really don't have the information uh, of that person that I need to be doing so. Does that answer your question? Definitely. Um, you mentioned earlier that individual dif- individual differences are often overlooked, um, and we asked we asked the same thing of of Hanny when we had him on um, a few weeks ago. How much actual variance do you see in person to person? Yeah, so I see quite a bit of individual difference, especially in terms of fat loss and the psychosocial differences between individuals plays a huge role in the application of the principles of energy balance and creating that ever important calorie deficit. So in terms of how hard it is for a coach to recognize these individual differences, uh, is, is it's quite a big factor. It's really important to be able to problem solve and troubleshoot uh, the factors that influence somebody's response to a diet or their ability to adhere to a calorie deficit because at the end of the day, we want to get results for the client, which means they need to adhere to the protocol um, so that we can measure and manage the variables within that. So adherence is a huge one in terms of fat loss and I think as you boys will know and most of the listeners will be aware of um, there are so many components related to adherence and the psychology of eating that make it a very very difficult task initially but again big individual difference in terms of the adherence component to nutrition as well as the in terms of the adaptations to uh energy restriction there's a lot of individual difference there so something I've uh, observed quite a lot is when we put somebody in a diet that sees them at a calorie deficit they start losing weight irrespective of the magnitude of weight lost so as a percentage of their total body mass the variation in energy expenditure as measured by number of steps because that's that's the best way to do it without uh, you know obviously Award that controls energy intake and energy expenditure. Um, there's quite a lot of difference. So I've seen some people have absolutely no change in terms of the number of steps that they take when at a calorie deficit, and I've seen other people who literally see a 30 to 50 percent reduction in total daily energy expenditure, expenditure as measured by steps. Uh, you know, even just by starting at a 500 calorie deficit within the first couple of weeks. More interesting is what I have observed over time is the magnitude of change in terms of their daily number of steps, the more weight they lose. And it usually follows the trend, much in line with the research, in that beyond the first 10% 
of weight loss. Uh, after that, most changes will in energy expenditure will be from uh, non-exercise activity. So, so for those listeners who might be unfamiliar with this, the initial 10% of weight loss um, in a calorie-restricted diet will see the greatest amount of change to resting metabolic rate, and beyond that is simply non-exercise activity thermogenesis that has uh, further reductions over time. Uh, so that's one area I've also seen quite a big individual difference. So with clients who see quite a significant drop in their activity levels when they diet, it, it becomes all the more important for me to make sure they're keeping their daily steps up. However, with other clients, it's, it's really a non-issue because their steps remain the same and this is usually a function of their their work and you know just how active their lifestyle is in general usually the people who are more sedentary do see that large effect in their activity levels whereas those who are a little more active on a day-to-day basis through subconscious activity whether it be work or they're just generally more active uh less of a, a change i guess another area i've seen huge variation is as you boys would know is obviously just the mechanics of lifting so whether somebody's suited to sumo conventional you know their hand position uh, on a bench press um you know their I'm foot stance stop you there mate no one's suited to sumo <laughs> <laughs> i agree man i tried it and i my shit snapped up quick smart and i realized that it wasn't for me um, literally yeah, obviously- how i snapped my shit up was pulling sumo that's where yeah. that's where all the resentment <laughs> came from. <laughs> Actually, that's how I tore my hamstring. I was pulling. No it. way. Yeah. So fuck it. Bin it. Ban it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, carry on. So you see that much difference in people's responses to hypercaloric diets and in their lifting mechanics. Yeah. And yeah, lifting mechanics, and in terms of um, potential for muscle growth. So a lot of my clients. Um, who are bodybuilders naturally fall into the category of being a bodybuilder because they genetically respond a little bit better than most. Um, so they have quite a significant amount of muscle. They build muscle pretty quickly and they say, hey, I want to compete because they, they have more muscle than most. Um, whereas a lot of my clients, it takes quite a bit of time to, to pack on some meat. And that's just another example of the individual differences in terms of potential rate of gain and what's required for somebody who isn't necessarily on the genetically blessed side, a little bit of an outlier in terms of how quickly they can gain muscle. Um, It just takes longer and they need a little bit more hard work and consistency over time. And in that, I guess another huge factor in going back to the hypercaloric dieting is muscle retention. So those who are just a little bit more genetically favored to building muscle will keep a little bit more muscle when they're dieting. Um, So this has implications for how aggressive you can be with the diet, um, how quickly you can get them in and out of a fat loss phase or through their contest prep, how many refeeds they need, how many diet breaks, things like that, versus somebody who takes a little longer to build the muscle, might need a little longer dieting, a little less assertive uh, energy deficits, more refeeds, more diet breaks, and things like that, just to ensure that they don't uh, lose that tissue. So, yeah, man, I could give a number of different contexts and you know situations where I've seen huge inter-individual differences, um, but they're just a, a couple of interesting ones that I guess... Uh, I've definitely seen play out. It's a shame because you've sort of alienated a huge portion of our listenership, like, you know, the breatharians and the keto people by all your allusions to, um, to yeah, hypercaloric dieting and energy balance and all that stuff. Just I know. Now, but I feel like Shocker. hopefully the message was there, even by analogy. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
in terms of what you were saying. Alex, you had another question. Yeah, I wanted to take you back about maybe like 15 take minutes. Back, Alex. Take, about like 15 minutes now. Yeah, to your last it's breath, been, I think. It's been maybe even 20 minutes. Um, you, you know mentioned- you know what happens? I, I do presentations. So I've literally the last month been doing presentations for our mentorship course. So look, recording lectures and things like that. So when I start talking, it's like presenter mode, talk, just keep going, going, going. And I really forget that this is a conversation. Yeah, so my apologies. This is, very, this is very different to the late night phone calls that you have with me. <laughs> well, you just lay exactly. down the law and say, Alex, you know, less of the Cheetos. Stop having beers, bro. <laughs> Alex is on the beers every, while you're telling him. Every weekend, every weekend, I'm just watching Alex's antics on Saturday night. Thinking, <laughs> He's normally harassing me as well. He had an actual question, though, about the podcast. Sorry, about 15, maybe like 18 minutes now, uh, minutes ago, you um, mentioned the skills that evidence-based practitioners have. I wanted mm-hmm. to know what what you think these are and what are the best ways to go about building those those skills. Yeah, so I thought about this question because there's a number of different ways that you can come at it and the first will be to improve your critical thinking skills. Um, but I wanted to give listeners, I guess, three big takeaways and tools that they can use to be more evidence-based and just a better thinker. So number one is key in on the foundations so that is understand not just know about because I think there's a very big difference between knowing something and understanding it knowing something could be just the recognition that it exists but understanding it is more the conceptual uh, framework around that specific concept and having a deep uh, very ingrained theoretical and practical application of a topic so learning about the scientific principles the immutable truths of physiology so for example like i spoke about and we're going to you know destroy the uh, hopes and dreams of all those keto and uh, you know carnivore diet fanatics but thermodynamics and energy balance so people understand that that exists or rather they know that it exists but they don't actually understand it so they don't understand the uh, you know components of energy expenditure they don't understand the factors that influence intake and output and therefore they don't understand energy balance and the foundations of what it requires to change body mass and over time if we have the right stimulus and resistance training things like that body composition so learn as much as possible about those scientific principles and the immutable truths of physiology there's a lot of them as it relates to nutrition and then training but you need to really really key in on those foundations the second is the application of those principles to in-person and online coaching. So recognizing that the understanding of these topics is one thing, but the application to coaching in whatever modality it is, whether it's online or face-to-face, is really important. So not being dogmatic in your approach, and this is what we spoke about ad nauseum just before, but individualization. So having a number of ways to apply the principles and being creative because when you understand the principles your only limitation in the application is your ability to be creative so make sure that you obviously stay within the parameters of what is safe and effective and that you know will work based on your rationale logic research and experience so on and so forth Um, but make sure that you're creative and really focus on devising a plan for the client. And I've spoken on a number of podcasts of you know the importance of systems. And a lot of people might perceive that as, oh, cool, Jacob has a system that he applies to everyone. 
It's like, no, I have systems that are based around all these big principles, but then I'm very creative in terms of how I apply them, and no two programs that I write look the same. One of my mentorship students asked me the other day, do I have a bunch of templates, you know, for beginners, intermediates, advanced, based on, you know, their lifting experience, or how many times a week they're training, that I just give out to a new client? I said, no, literally, I don't have a program template, except the downloadables that are like $29 um, for eight, eight weeks of programming yeah, online. Plug, Everything. plug it, man, plug it. Yeah. <laughs> Weekly weights, 10 for your discount. <laughs> yeah, we'll sell enough for you boys. Um, <laughs> no, but like, honestly, I literally write from scratch every single fucking program um, and every nutritional plan, but I'm creative with how I do that so that it works for the person. And a really good example of this is not just prescribing macros. So we know the principle of energy balance, so we're going to use that to, to build uh, on this topic of how somebody can improve their knowledge base um, and the application of evidence-based practice. So I think understanding the principles and then knowing how to work within that to get the best result for the client is hugely important and understanding the continuum of things like flexibility and rigidity um, and learning what factors determine which approach is best for the client. So something that I used to do back in the day was, you know, anyone who started with me, if it fits your macros was how we're we gonna do it, here's your calories, here's your macros, stay within these ranges, two to three serves of veg and fruit a day, that's it, hit your macros, don't care what you eat, yada yada. But over time I've learned that flexibility isn't always the answer for a lot of people, especially if they're new to dieting, they've got some potential behavior issues surrounding their food intake, all that kind of stuff, and I've really learned how to be creative in terms of how I get somebody to adhere to a calorie deficit, whether it's cutting out full strength soft drink. So a lot of cases when I have an obese client, I actually had one guy who lost six kilos in two weeks with no changes to his diet but eliminating soft drink. That was it. And instead of you know giving him macros, which I would have done years and years before, I was able to get creative with it and think about how can I get this guy to adhere to a calorie deficit. So I think the application of the principles in person uh, to our clients needs to be creative and individualized, and we need to use our critical thinking toolbox uh, and our rationale to understand how to apply those principles. So that's number two. I think number three is, I'm trying to remember what it was now. Um, I went off on a little tangent there. Th oh, that's right, it's gaining experience and paying attention. So monitor outcomes. I think a big issue with a lot of coaches um, is that they don't monitor important variables. So making sure you keep logs and tracking people's training, their diet, and making sure that you have systems and structure around your adjustments. So like researchers would in a paper, making small adjustments or refinements to the variables controlled or the inputs, outputs, all those kind of things, coaches need to do the same. Don't overhaul, make small adjustments that can allow you to determine with more certainty what's driving the changes. And like I've said a couple of times now, starting with the broad strokes and what works on average for the average person, but then starting to really refine it over time. But refining only occurs if you're paying attention and really monitoring your clients. So not just their results, are they losing weight, are they progressing in their strength in training, things like that, but also the subjective factors. So taking a very, I hate this word, I freaking hate it, but holistic approach to how you manage your clients is really important. Um, 
so I guess that'd be my answer. I hope, uh, yeah, that was sufficient, man. Yeah, that was that was sufficient. Yeah, it was quite comprehensive. Um, yeah, I was worried you were going to be really monosyllabic when Alex asked it, but you know, you actually went off and answered for a couple of minutes there. Just, just out of the ordinary. Um, you said something that. <laughs> Sorry to the listeners. He's smirking. Um, you said something that. Um, you said something that really resonated with me, and I was. I had something to say in response to it, and now it's completely. That's strange, isn't it? Will having something to say. Yeah, I know that's also unusual. Um, somebody do some elevated music while I gather my thoughts. <laughs> oh, but uh, when you mentioned soft drink before. This might be an unpopular opinion, but I actually think diet soft drink is far better than full sugar. What are your thoughts, Jacob? Like just Man, the taste. I'm with you. Full sugar makes me feel queasy. My teeth go furry and shit. It's gross. Yeah, it's, it's not nice. I, I love the taste of chemicals. Will that's why I eat a lot of. That's why I eat a lot of food. Oh I'm yeah, no, I'm big on diet soft drink. It's got a bit of tang to it. Yeah, whereas the furry teeth thing's really mm. not cool. L- listeners out there, what are your thoughts? Comment below. Comment below, yeah. Leave your next weekly weights review and mention your thoughts on diet softening. Um, okay, I've actually completely forgotten the thing that I was I was going to say. This is the b- best moment ever on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, possibly. This is the best two minutes. Um, but one, but you did say, um, you did mention about if it fits in macros and how that used to be your blanket dietary prescription and, and now you've, you've learned to sort of adapt your approach to different people. I was wondering if there were other... Other times that you where you've um, you've changed a prior belief or practice in light of new evidence or things that you've learned. Yeah, definitely. I think number one uh, is the importance of the big lifts, and I know this will tie into further discussions on uh, building bigger biceps. But I used to believe that the big lifts uh, were a necessity for maximizing muscle growth and. Like most young coaches, I think they sort of gravitate towards you know your big multi-joint lifts because people can put a lot more weight on the bar, and we know that adding weight over time, strength progressions, progressive overload, yep, we get bigger. But over the years, I've actually realised that the big lifts, in many cases, are number one unnecessary for a lot of people, especially if their their goals are specifically to get bigger, and number two, not always the best way to measure um, muscle growth as a proxy of performance in the gym. Uh, And isolation exercises are actually a lot uh, more predictive of muscle growth uh, if we see improvements in strength over repetitions in the high-end ranges for multiple sets. So I guess that's one thing I've changed my mind on. Is that you just having an excuse because your deadlifts are bad? Mate, you watch me pull 290 by October next year. Mark my words. I'll buy you dinner if you do that. Done. Done. <laughs> you mark my words. I pulled 225 yesterday for a double, and it was, yeah, it was yeah. my second week of deadlifting, man. It was a piece of piss. Just 80 kilos to go, no worries. <laughs> you know what? I'm, Vin, I'm spiteful enough. I will fly you to Sydney so that Alex has to buy you dinner, just so Done. I can see the look <laughs> on his face for being wrong. But it's, it's going to be Tiger Air, because Will's cheap. Yeah, it's definitely going to be Tiger um, Air. You mightn't make it. <laughs> I, I say this a lot to... Um, my powerlifters and my um, powerlifting coaches just to stir the shit out of them because they they fall in love and they get so attached to powerlifting they think it's just like really complex sport and if you listen to Mike Tushera it's the most complex thing that you could ever do in life but um, I always say powerlifting is an easy sport closed environment one training quality three lifts 
how fucking hard can it be? We've so you watch to, reality. We should talk for 40 hours about it on our podcast. So. Yeah. And people <laughs> listen. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, I just <laughs> but I think, uh, yeah, Alex, you're going to eat your words, man. Yeah, suck up. Anyway, uh, so big lifts uh, are, are not important when it comes to muscle growth. Or I shouldn't say not important. They're not uh, as necessary. And that's definitely something that I've uh, come to realize over the years. Um, the other one, what was I going to say? Until Alex distracted me. Um, oh, the necessity of flexible dieting, like I mentioned, uh, recognizing the continuum of rigidity to flexibility in terms of how much uh, structure we have around the diet and you know, the controls within nutrition and changing how I prescribe nutrition or the amount of flexibility given to a client uh, based on their education, so their understanding of nutrition. Uh, you know, If I have a client who doesn't even know energy balance exists or has no idea what a protein, carbon, fat are, I'm not going to give them macros. Um, I'm going to give them you know, a self-prescribed meal plan. So they'll write a meal plan for themselves and I'll make sure that it ticks the boxes in terms of calories, protein, carbs, fat fruits, veg, to meet fiber requirements, so on and so forth, um, and then I'll just get them to follow the meal plan um, until they start to, to learn and evolve over time. Um, if somebody has you know, a lot of red flags in terms of their behaviors, um, sometimes more rigidity is not necessarily a good thing, even if it's a you know tracking macros or following meal plan, uh, because knowing that flexibility is very much a mindset, not necessarily the approach taken. Um, but yeah, if somebody has eating disorders, body image issues, often less rigidity is a good thing. Um, also understanding somebody's personality and the differences in terms of how they respond to various degrees of structure um, and flexibility is really important. And I've realized more and more over time that often a rigid approach works for most people especially if they're time poor they're not really interested in you know learning much about nutrition they just want to get the results um, and also their goals so if their goals are such that they want to lose weight really really quickly and we know that uh, there's actually a decent body of research showing that uh, rapid weight loss initially can enhance motivation and adherence to dieting um, and most of the time a flexible approach to dieting there is a large learning curve involved. So a rigid diet uh, really, really works well in those initial favors to get the result, to get the buy-in, to then start teaching people, you know, the basics of nutrition and, you know, dropping in some elements of flexibility. So I guess, yeah, another big uh, area I've changed my mind on is the role of rigid dieting. And I'm far more inclined to prescribe a more rigid diet with a new client, especially uh, if context of that client uh, calls for it and another one uh, which is quite controversial is within program design and the role of deloads for for gem pop and physique athletes um, I very much agree with Meno Henselmans who uh, auto regulates deloads and doesn't have a traditional uh, you know four to one work to rest paradigm and again this is I think where a lot of coaches really need to understand the origins of things like work to rest ratios uh, in terms of deloads because the old three to one paradigm originated from the Olympics that have three years 
off season, one year on season, and then it started to translate into program design in terms of work to rest ratios. And in the context of hypertrophy and for the gem pop, we need to understand a couple of things. And number one is that deloads are a fatigue management strategy. And this is where understanding the principles of training just really starts to highlight how we apply those principles in in practice. Um, And for gem pop clients, who are likely only training three times a week, that means they're resting more than they are training and are likely not lifting great absolute loads or in fact training very hard uh, most of the time, potentially skipping sessions, having days or weeks off out of nowhere for whatever reason. Do we need to manage fatigue? I would say in most cases, probably not as much as what people think probably not every four weeks or five weeks because it's just unnecessarily taking a detour from getting in an appropriate amount of stimulus that can drive some adaptations. So I think that's number one. And number two, in the context of physique athletes, we understand and recognize the importance of training volume in the exposure to tension. So for those listeners who aren't familiar, tension in terms of uh, the mechanical stress that we apply is very much the intensity which drives the adaptation and volume is simply exposure to that tension. And for physique athletes, the common means of measuring volume is number of hard working sets per week per muscle group. So we need to recognize that number one, we need appropriate mechanical tension um, and to some degree metabolic stress. And we also need sufficient exposure for the appropriate morphological adaptations to take place. So that is muscle growth. And within that, that means on average over time, we're going to be training with quite a high degree of exposure to tension, so volume. Um, and the more we deload, the more we're trying to manage fatigue. And in essence, to get bigger, we need consistent exposure to the training stress, which means we need to learn how to train in fatigued conditions. Um, and this is a very fine balancing act, and I'm still learning about uh, how best to approach this. I'm open to change my mind on this um, if you know my experience and what I see in practice with my clients starts to show me otherwise. But so far, auto-regulating deloads for my physique athletes um, when they need it or simply one muscle group or one lift as opposed to a whole week off training has been shown to be really effective. Um, I've even seen some of my intermediate guys go 10 weeks or more without needing a full deload and having to take a whole week off training, um, which is counterintuitive. And to a lot of coaches, especially if they're strength coaches, they're going to say, well, how are you going to do that? But I think there's a number of differences in the structure and design of the program for physique athlete uh, versus a powerlifter. So obviously, number one is the absolute loads used. Number two is exercise selection. So uh, physique athletes will typically use more machines, more isolation work, uh, and things like that. What are you smart asses smirking about? <laughs> oh, man. You're just, this is like the Sermon on the Mount. You know, um, so, so far I'm nodding my head as you go. But like, I'm, you're, just, you're just spitting fire. That's, that's why we're smirking. I thought you were smirking that I said more machines and isolation work. Oh, no. I'm all for that, man. You probably can't uh, see from the stream. But look how bloody jacked up I'm looking. I'm on the machines all day. Look at these things. Hey, Alex gained three kilos in the last 14 days. He's fucking got you covered. <laughs> no, not quite. <laughs> I um, Alex. So, oh, yeah. In essence, I think physique athletes don't need to deload specific time frames. Um, 
I think a better approach, especially if somebody advances, is to have specialization phases where you select a muscle group for eight to 12 weeks and you really prioritize that muscle group and you pull all other muscle groups uh, down to maintenance. So you allow more recovery resources um, and adaptive potential to go towards that muscle group. And that way, you don't really need to deload because you're not doing the same amounts of intensity and volumes across all musculature. So the accumulation of that fatigue is only, uh, you know, very much peripheral uh, as opposed to being, you know, as systemic as what it would be if everything was jacked up to the nines across all muscle groups. So, yeah, I think there's just a number of uh, changes I've made to how I approach fatigue management for my gen pops and fatigue athletes. Uh, Fatigue athletes? Physique athletes. Physique athletes <laughs> who need to learn to train under fatigue. Um, we're going to come back and actually get a bit more into the weeds with those ideas after our break, which is coming up soon. But I remember the thing I was going to say way back. Right? You remember that awkward two minutes where we were yep. just yep. like, you know, talking filling the about, space? Talking about soft drinks. Yeah, it's like that part in the middle of an album where they just have like the shitty little two-minute song that nobody ever remembers. That was, that was us. But the thing I remembered... Um, was you were talking about how the way you actually get better um, in reflecting on your own practice is by being mindful and actually paying attention to the things that you do. And something that's occurred to me is that trainers and people in the fitness industry are wired very much to be positive and look for the positive. So they like to implement interventions. They like to think, you know, irrespective of what happens, they think, you know, great because like we're in here doing the right thing and changing the world, which is great. Um, But reflective practice... um, actually involves you being able to ask yourself what are the things I did wrong what don't I know that I need to know and what could I do better so I was wondering if there is any particular way that you go about doing that for yourself and what types of questions you think trainers should ask themselves when assessing how they've gone with a client yeah for sure so number one what I do with each of my clients, like I mentioned, especially if they're a new client, is I give myself that time frame of three to four weeks uh, to assess how that initial setup is working. So I really stringently monitor how things are working there. And I guess that's a very specific uh, way to be reflective on your practice uh, is within an individual and the client itself. But I guess you can look more globally to your practice. and. Like you mentioned, we need to ask where did we go wrong? And this is something I often ask. So if I uh, lose a client, for example, or the client misses a lift, or for whatever reason, they haven't achieved what they uh, should have achieved, that's obviously a really significant uh, point that you're being presented with where things have gone wrong. So I think that's where most coaches either ignore that, as you mentioned, their their bias is to be super positive and less critical of things. But what I've learned to do over the years is to not focus all of my energies on things I've done well, but to focus more so on the areas that haven't been working and where things haven't played out as they should have and troubleshooting that. And I think it's a very fine balancing act because if you spend too much time thinking about what didn't work, why it didn't work and you know, stewing over things going poorly, then you can fall into the trap of, you know, being overly critical of yourself, which doesn't necessarily mean you're going to grow and get better over time. But I do think you need to have periods dedicated towards reflection of the negative things that are happening within your practice. So what I actually do is I'll do a stock take, if you will, 
two to three times a year where I plan it out and I have a full day of going through my client roster and everything that's happened between my last quote-unquote stock take and assess how things have played out. So what I'll actually do is I'll pull up my client roster and I'll ask a number of questions around that specific client. Have they achieved their goals? You know, How was communication? How was the overall plan? Did the overall plan work? Were there any issues with adherence or communication? Questions of that nature. And it, it really allows me to think pretty critically of what I'm doing. Um, and by doing that with every client, I get not just the negative side of things and where things haven't gone well and you know what things need to be improved, but also the cases that have seen a tremendous amount of success. Um, and the objective for me is when I do those stock takes over time to have more and more positive experiences with my clients and less and less negative experiences with my clients and more importantly to refine the questions that I'm asking of myself and you know the approach and in being reflective with your practice there's a difference between asking questions and thinking about things versus actually using ref- reflection to gain information the right information and then take that information and do something with it And this is where I think a lot of coaches who might reflect and be mindful really miss the mark because they're not getting the right information and they're not actually doing anything about it. So what I focus more so on is getting the right information and making sure over time the information I'm getting is better and better and more useful to my development long term. And then also that I'm able to take that information and do something with it so that on average over time I can improve outcomes and make sure that things are getting better, that there's you know less bias, less you know uh, fuck I don't even know where I'm going with this now but things are getting better over time on average that's what I'm looking to do sweet we got one final question then we're going to have a little break and come back and talk about um, growing bigger biceps Alex what's the question I'm very excited to talk about biceps yeah um, I'd be excited to talk about biceps Um, (laughs) non-functional hypertrophy you were um, you were talking earlier about the toolbox that evidence evidence based practitioners can acquire um, I wanted to know if which sort of people you you recommend in the fitness industry for people to learn from, other than, of course, yeah. weekly weights. Well, weekly weights would be my number one weekly weightlifting podcast for being a better evidence-based practiced athlete and coach. Number two... Uh, We're clipping that, know, by the way. <laughs> and then you got to play it on the JPS podcast. I, I will, I will. I'll intro. get you boys on soon. Number two, in no particular order, would be Eric Helms. I think he's always been someone who has really prioritized uh, the thinking component of coaching more so than the uh, methodologies that we use. So he's a he's a great uh, leader in the industry that I have uh, worked with personally to improve my uh, development. Uh, number three, Greg Knuckles. Uh, you boys had him on the show not too long ago, but... Greg is a really good thinker, very, very good writer, um, and insanely good presenter, despite him saying that he's horrible. Um, but he's a he's sharp, and he does teach his readers and his following to to think a little more critically about what they're doing. Um, and I guess another one, I'm just trying to think, oh, Danny Lennon. Danny Len- Lennon is phenomenal. That's the uh, Sigma. He, is he the guy who hosts Sigma? Yeah, yeah, he's yeah, excellent. Sigma. He, um, yeah, he's uh, a lecturer on our mentorship program and 
I've uh, admired Danny for years and years, but having now worked with him a little more closely and seen you know, what he does on the back end, he just impresses me more and more and more. Um, but he, in my opinion, is the epitome of evidence base. You know, he, he's got his bachelor's degree. He's up to date with the research. He's across so many fields, you know, within the scientific uh, world. And then not only that, but he's able to apply it and, you know, work with individuals in, in a number of sports on both the nutrition and the training side of things. So he's uh, a standout for me. So I guess those three would, would be the guys that I would start with. And then from there, yeah, you can obviously see who they uh, associate themselves with. And I think this is very useful for a lot of coaches is, you know, getting in the right circles um, and following the right people. And over time, you can start to, you know, branch out and learn from more and more people across various fields. And it can just really help you refine your bullshit radar. But again, you must be critical uh, in how you perceive all information and not fall into the trap of the echo chamber that exists within the evidence-based practice field. Um, but yeah, I think starting with those three and branching out over time. All right, beautiful. Thank you. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back in a moment to talk about, like we said, getting bigger biceps. So thank you. 